Why are you yelling over email? Uh, every time I, 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 if you have more than one question mark uh-huh. in your in your question, that's not a question anymore. That's a, it's that's a statement. Just, it's, it's a, a statement. statement. <laughs> you are yelling at somebody. It's ah, that's what I read. The extra question mark says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's the replacement for three letters, you know, Wednesday, <laughs> Thursday, Friday. <laughs> Welcome to the What's Your Baseline podcast. In this show, we talk about our experiences and lessons learned in enterprise architecture and business process management. What's Your Baseline is designed to be for everyone. Newbies who are just getting started with these topics, organizations who want to improve their EA and BPM groups and the value they get from it, as well as practitioners who want to get a different perspective and care about the discipline. Each episode will tackle different key topics, providing context, background, best practices, and stories from the road, inviting you to learn from our challenges and successes, and demonstrating key tools to help you set up your practice and get the most out of it. I'm your host, Roland Wold, and I'm joined today by my co-host, J.M. Erlinson. Hey, J.M., how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. It's a Monday. I don't know if people ever know what days we record these podcasts on, but today is a Monday, and you know what? It's not a bad Monday. I feel like there's one of those things where you kind of get all your work done by Friday and you can like release yourself into the weekend to, to relax. I feel like that, don't, that doesn't always, always happen, but uh, it did for me this weekend. I had a finally had a weekend that I could actually spend a little time down, as they say. How, how, did, you, how did your weekend go? Wait, 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 wait. You make people believe that we always record at the same day at the same time. So my impression is slightly different here. Okay. Tell me about how you doing, Roland? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. And I have, um, as always, a little surprise for you. Really? Because, yeah, I decided to mix up our show structure today. I know, I know. Tell our audience all about this new structure and also, in particular, why it's so important for the topic we are covering today. Well, the topic that we cover is facilitating uh, process discovery and design sessions. Mm, And uh. as you might recall, JM, if you paid attention over the last 35 recordings that we have done, (laughs) uh, we typically have the structure of why, how, and then uh, some value, some stories, some whatever conclusion of these things. But I thought for this session, it doesn't make sense, you know, because it's more like a how-to, the whole session. So what we're going to do today, JM, is we just structure it by timeline. Yeah. Before the session, during the session, and after the session. How does that sound? That sounds good to me. I, I feel like there's there's not a lot of questions about why you should do facilitated process discovery. Why? I mean, there, we can knock it out a little bit about what this means as, as it fits into a world of process mining, but... I think we all agree, and particularly the practitioners on the, on the line, hopefully you'll, you'll have had a chance to do this in the past or see the outcomes of it. This is important. So the why is not quite as relevant. And the value statements, they're also something that you'll get out of these kind of exercises. You'll see how they come about through the timeline. And I think this actually is a, a much better way of addressing this problem. But let's get started, and let's start talking first and foremost about the before the session. And I did I did mention briefly about the why. Um and I do, I, I do want to touch on that, that this is a facilitated conversation, right? This is the ability to discover process, to actually make process come to life. And in doing so, you're putting a human touch, a human understanding onto business process, going beyond just the data that something like a process mining tool would kick out um, or some, uh, some automated process documentation that might have come along with your off-the-shelf system. This is really your business. 
Wait, 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 wait. You wait, JM. You're assuming that you don't have to talk to people when you have process mining. <laughs> What? No. You uh. obviously have to talk with them. So you do some form of interaction with your SMEs and your stakeholders anyway, because you need to get a good understanding of the process that you're looking at. So that question does not change. But maybe I want to go a, a step even further before that. Um, and the, the ultimate question where I see clients struggling with is, uh, how do they identify what to change? You know, and what's the purpose of that whole exercise in general? So, JM, what is your opinion on that? How have you seen that done in the past? Yeah, that's a great question. Identifying what to change is really difficult, um, particularly from an executive perspective, because you're not on the ground level. And it can become a lot of noise. Everyone loves to complain. I mean, how many times have you gone to a process discovery session? People have been like, yeah, this is working great. Let's not talk about this. Everybody <laughs> wants to complain. And there's that, that's sort of the ground level noise that you're going to get back from your community. Channeling that into something useful is what we're going to talk about today. But making the decision about where to make that action is tough. There's a few different things that I, I often consider. A number one is I, I like to get feedback. So what's working and what isn't working and give them, give me a sense of, you know, from a ground level perspective, what's actually causing the most amount of pain to my people and how is that affecting my customers? So how can I make that connection into what those processes will actually do to the operations of the business due to the outcomes that I'm, I'm, I don't want to see in, in my uh, customer interactions. The other part of that is that identifying what to change has to align with your strategy. So you need to understand what your, what your, I mean, mission is. We had, um, the great conversation about mission with security, but remember mission also factors very heavily into process improvement. That whole process improvement bend has to follow how your organization is going to evolve its products and services to better serve its customers, mm -hmm. to operate in the marketplace, to become competitive and start to excel in what it does. Those are things that need to drive the conversation. So you're looking at what isn't working. What's, what are you, what are you struggling with? What are we trying to do? And how does this fit into our plan and strategy? And then what needs to change to turn what we've, what we're doing right now that isn't working into what will facilitate our strategy? So sort of that enabler question. And that's what I, I, people normally look for. They look for, I need to find my list of enablers that are going to be process driven that I can tackle with human and, 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 uh, automation, uh, changes. Yeah. But that is, that is still very abstract. I think when you look at the, doing level. Um, one thing that we recommend, and, and one of the reasons we'll laugh about this, is obviously creating an enterprise baseline, right? So that's <laughs> a reason why our podcast is called What's Your Baseline, right? So you need to understand what's actually going on. And I think a lot of organizations, they just do that spot check, You know, oh, I heard it's not running well there. So let's have a look at it, you know? And what I would encourage is to go and Uh, get a thorough understanding of what's out there. How does the landscape look like? And then to those items there, and I'm landscape, I mean process landscape, not necessarily systems. Right, right, right. Uh, based on that landscape, I would have a look at, okay, what are the KPIs? What are the SLAs that we want to accomplish there? Do we meet that? Right. So when you think about it, and you and I spoke about in our maturity episode about this, when you're on a CMMI level five, where everything has a feedback channels and everything is measured and, and it's running like a well-oiled machine, then it's easy. 
The problem is how to get there. And yeah. for that, I think you need to have that baseline in place. And then maybe just saying, okay, it's, it's running okay, you know, this part of our process landscape. Maybe we don't want to touch it just because, JM, this is your favorite topic, you know, <laughs> which you can talk about all day long. Well, I, I think we, we see that a lot in organizations, this, this push towards, you know, strategic is political. Mm-hmm. And I think that there, there is that strategic political trade-off you have to make. Remember, you still need to have stakeholders. Process transformation can't happen without buy-in, without backing, without executive sponsorship. So yes, yeah. political is relevant, but strategic is still independent of political when it comes to business outcomes. So when you're trying to do enterprise baseline, when you're trying to build, what does it mean for our company to be successful? You want to look at what does your company offer, the services that it supports, what, what products does it do, mm-hmm. rather than how your business is structured. If you look at it BU by BU, rather than value by value or, or outcome by outcome, you're going to fall into a trap. You'll fall into the, oh, we, we do better because we make thing X. And well, does thing X actually matter? I don't know. It may, may not have any outcomes that the customers can see and the bottom line can experience. Oh, yeah. Or you fall into the trap that you need to grow your, your kingdom. Yes. Right? I'm more uh, yeah. important than you are because I have more people, which also doesn't make sense, right? Or you're at the point of sub-optimizing your process. Like, oh, I can't heal the world, you know, but I can optimize my little thing without thinking upstream or downstream. Yeah. But, yeah, but once you, you identified those areas, then what I typically see is clients, they, they have that Eureka moment. Oh, this is it, right? And then they focus only on this area. So my second recommendation after having a baseline would be to develop something like a standard analysis pack, right? So a bunch of, a bunch of things that you would apply and, and measure and put in relation of that thing that you've identified. Hmm. And then based on that, you decide, oh, is it worth it? So it's something like a quick check, you know, where you, where you feel the, the temperature when you go to the doctor, you know, right. they take your vitals, right? And, and if your uh, uh, body temperature is not about a certain amount of degrees, well, you're good, you know. If it's over 100 degrees Fahrenheit or more, well, then somebody is more concerned. Yeah, that's something you could have as a kind of great equalizer, right? Mm-hmm. Your standard analysis become something that everyone has to fall into rather than sort of the wishy-washy, you know, hey, well, I'm feeling better, but I think I I value this more highly. Now, a standard analysis pack tells you, well, here's how this fits into how everyone is being measured or how everyone is being categorized. Mm -hmm. And also that starts to have the conversation we're going to have a little bit later about putting it in a harmonized language. We talked talked about this in previous uh, episodes, but having the same standard language helps to bring collaborators together so they can actually work on this rather than have them be speaking their own language at each other without seeing each other's work. Yep. I, I love it. And, and, and I think that, that that fits into the next piece of the, the puzzle here, um, which we talk about like reference architecture standards for, for rollout. And I think this is something that um, a lot of people are thinking about when they do these facilitated sessions is that they're building processes that will become a part of their enterprise standard. Mm-hmm. Or at least they're trying to build processes that will become part of their enterprise standard. We talk about the standardization effort. What is that really? It's really about developing robust process structures that you can test, you can validate, you can gain buy-in, and then you can share. 
And so this is a, this is what we're trying to do. We're, one of our purposes is to share process, right? It it also helps in setting the direction, you know. And I, I said it oh, a yeah. couple of times on the podcast. You know, you need to have an idea what good looks like. What is a good process, JM? Is it the one that's the fastest, the cheapest, the one with the best resource utilization? What is it, right? And when you develop those quote unquote standards. That obviously puts everybody in the same mood, in the same mindset to say, oh, yeah, we define good in our organization as this. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I love it. And once we've got these in place, Rowan, I want to move to the next point here because I think this is this is something that I, I want to get your thoughts on. We have now figured out what, what, what to change, what our purpose is. We've mm-hmm. put sort of a, a tablet in the, in the stone tablet of here's what we're going to do. Now – we need to involve people. We talk about this all the time. Yep. It's always the people, right? Yep. But the question is, who do we involve? Who do we invite? So before the session, we're planning on our attendee list. And I know you've got some criteria for selection of people to bring into this conversation because they're the ones ultimately delivering the value, right? They're giving you the information. Yeah. I, I think, I don't know if it's a, a, a hard list of criteria, but I think the point is you should have a list of criteria. That's the first <laughs> one. Uh, y- your mileage might vary. But when we look at, um, for example, of the different roles that you want to bring in, right? Uh, you want to bring in not only your project team, right? Mm-hmm. You want to bring in your practitioners, your process improvement folks. And, and you will hear in the next session, uh, an interview with a gentleman that we spoke about, Lean and Six Sigma. Oh, yeah. Of this, you know, somebody who really knows what this all means. Or you bring in risk people or your techies and all those guys in your design sessions. So one of the criteria that you would have would be diversity, right? Mm. And not only just saying you're sitting there in your little hole and – and you figure it out by yourself because that will cost a lot of time and you can piggyback on the experience that other people had. But JM, I think it would start a little bit earlier Hmm. um, when you think about selecting it. Who's making those selections? That's a great question. Well, I I think that there's a, a few different people who can select this list but it does have to be aligned, right? Mm-hmm. It has to be aligned between all these people. So we talked before about enterprise strategy. Talk about the people who are being affected by this strategy, people who are, you know, the one or two jumps in relationship away. So that's a process owners directly in fact affected mm-hmm. and the folks who are your consumers and producers. If you think about looking at the P of SIPOX, we talk about supplier input, uh, process output, and customer or consumer. Mm-hmm. That P is what you're looking to develop. And your S and C, suppliers and consumers, become part of that conversation. And then the next thing is, is you know, we talk about strategic alignment. What are things we really care about? You mentioned the word risk before, but there are tons of different domains. If you, if you wanted to get into it, you could invite the whole zoo. But that's not what you need to do right now. What is our enterprise focused on? What are we most concerned about? What resources do we have and what people are are chomping at the bit. So now the person making the selection, so these are you know the folks who are do, in the process uh, COE or mm-hmm. the folks who are you know loaned in as a consultant are going to say, listen, I would like this particular sphere of influence 
to be involved because this sphere includes people that are strategic to our concerns right now about this process. And you center it in time, you center it in the organization strategy, and then align that from a COE and or consultant perspective with your stakeholders, and then align that with your end con- con- contributors. Make sense? So I, yeah, it does, it does. But I want to be very, very clear. The way how I see it is, you have a group that's tasked with managing processes in the organization. That is, that might or might not be the sum of all process owners. Right. So typically in larger organizations, that's a smaller group, you know, driven by a COO or a CFO, whoever is tasked with, with changing the organization. And that might be the group that actually decides what are the topics, you know, that we want to look at our, Mm -hmm. our first part, what to change and what's the purpose of it. And they also might decide, well, who are our quote unquote standard participants? Right. Right. So for example, you might have uh, a group of 20, 30 process owner in your organization. I don't think you need to have all 20, 30 people in every <laughs> meeting around the processes, right? No, no. So that there might be a higher circle, if you will, who makes those decisions. But then obviously when it comes to uh, the certain areas that you want to change, say you want to fix procurement or you want to fix HR, right. you know, if you have identified that, then obviously you would have your process owners in there. You would also have all those other roles that I mentioned before, the the practitioners, the process improvement folks, and so on and so forth, right? Yeah. And then maybe lastly, you also might want to step out of your own uh, realm, right? Outside of your own organization. Bring in external people. Yeah. Look for, for example, an industry specialist, you know, somebody who brings an external perspective, some leading practices or benchmarks or all these things that uh, get people out of that. Oh, this is how we always have it done mind. Yeah. I had a question for you about the external versus internal. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about the facilitation itself as you're looking to invite somebody to run this? What are the costs or benefits or, or your perspective on whether or not that person who's standing at the front of the room should be from within the organization or from outside the organization, or does it matter? I think it matters um, what kind of person it is. Okay. So it could be it could be internal or external. You know, it should be obviously somebody who has a certain credibility because they bring in X years of experience in topic X. Um, They should be good facilitators. They should have seen a thing or two so that they don't get distracted, you know, and don't jump on any distraction Uh that a participant might throw at them. Like, it's so important that we talk about this topic now. And and they are obviously tasked with holding the line and saying, nope, this is not the topic that we want to talk today. You know, we're talking about that. So, at the end of the day, um, I think it doesn't matter which organization that person comes from, um, but the quality of the person. Yeah. Having said that, we've all seen it and we've all been there. If you pay from somebody from outside, that person and, and whatever that person might think has a higher value because you paid for it. <laughs> yep. We're investing in this, so therefore it's worth more. Yeah, I, I yeah. see. There's a little bias there as well. The other part about this I wanted to also touch on. So, so my, my personal opinion is I, I understand that external is, is good. It, it, is, it provides a new, fresh perspective. One of the things that external does um, is, and I really like it, 
is that they're that they're, they kind of play stupid very well. Oh, I don't know how this works. Tell me how it works. Mm-hmm. And no one goes, "Come on, Bob, you know how this works. We worked together here for 25 years." They go, "Oh, this person external actually doesn't know." Now I have to spell it out in detail, which I think is kind of good. It it forces that conversation. Uh. It can go in the other direction. You know, people also can think like, oh, what kind of an idiot did they just hire? You know, he doesn't know anything. So I don't want to talk to this. This is a waste of my time. So it's a fine balance that you have to walk there. Um, And to the other side, one could also make the same case if you have, for example, a central process improvement group Hmm. that sends out their own, quote unquote, consultants to the arguments who want to improve, they would be, quote unquote, external as well, even though they are employees of the firm. Sure. So, and I've seen that in some organizations who had their internal consulting groups. So that could work as well. The other thing I like to do is I don't necessarily think of a single facilitator. Um, Oftentimes when I've run very successful process facilitation sessions, I've had sometimes two or even three people in that role who have come together as a team to make this mm-hmm. come to life. And I think of the, the two main roles of this um, from a facilitation perspective is we have an architect and a storyteller. The architect's job is, is all about the technical stuff, the you know, creation of models, the, you know, the, the creation of structures that you can see, that you can work with, that they change it, they capture information. They're, they're not just a note taker, they're really the, the designer of your end state. The storyteller is almost just the conversationalist who's trying to extract yeah. information. And yes, you can do that all at one at once if you're really, really good. But what a beautiful point it is to divide that up between somebody who's actually hands-on keyboard and somebody who's more inviting in with gesture, with emotion, with physicality that you simply can't do sitting behind a computer. I actually would go a step further, right? I, I agree. So sure. if you facilitate... Typically, you can't do uh, whatever. You can't create the artifacts, right? You can't create the models and and whatnot. Uh, But I also would include, and typically these are the young colleagues on the project, you know, fresh out of college, and (laughs) they're the note takers and whatnot. But you bring them in just to listen in and and literally take notes because they are the guys who say, why are you doing this? What is that? I do not understand. They honestly do not understand, right? It's not just like the old guy who who plays dumb. So I definitely would encourage bring in people from the outside in in the regard of um, they don't know the process, right? Right. But they're listening in and and try to understand it because at the end of the day, if you cannot make yourself understandable to a, another person, a layman, right? Then then you fail exactly. But before you even start this conversation, I wanted to, to, to go to the next topic, which is the pre- pre- preparation. Um, what are the pre-reads that, that go into this? And what? Yeah, there, there's, you need to prepare? There's work that what? happens before the work <laughs> happens. I know. It seems crazy to say, but What a weird concept. <laughs> you're going to have <laughs> this one moment or these few moments in time which are very high pressure. Yeah. A lot of things going on. A lot of people in this single space kind of stuck together to try and have an outcome. The best you can do to enable that is to do as much work in advance as possible. So tell me, Roland, what have you recommended in the past for people to bring from a knowledge perspective, from a pre-read perspective, what, what makes them feel and act in an enabled fashion during the session? So maybe take a step back. And and obviously I had a little mockery tone uh, in my last comment. 
um, what I've seen is in the majority of the workshops that I was in was that people weren't prepared at all. Right. And that's the worst outcome you can have. Boom. So, yeah, exactly. So, um, when you do some prerequisites, and I will talk about that in a sec, when you do that and you notice you're the facilitator, you notice that your participants don't have it, it might be a good idea just to stop the session here and send Ooh. people home and say, Oh, look, you might say it nicely. Oh, look, you didn't do your homework, right? Let's <laughs> reschedule. You know, we're going to meet in two days, right? Same yeah. room, same time. Bye bye. But, um, if you ask what people should prepare and pre-read and bring with them, the one thing that obviously comes into mind is everything around what already exists as artifacts. Yeah. So when we talk about a process, most likely there are forms, you know, you could take a screen print of a system. Uh, there might be catalogs, think about product catalogs and, and so on, you know. Um, and there's also existing documentation. You know, people might have written a Word document from scratch without a process model and, and, um, yeah, whatever, put it into virtual pieces of paper. And then when you do the <laughs> digging, you might discover more often than you might want to that there are different groups who did the same exercise many, many times, right? Exactly. So group A has a procurement uh, manual and group B has a procurement manual. And when you compare those, they're not necessarily the same, the same thing, you know? So collect all the artifacts that a process is attached to or documented in or uses during its execution would be my first recommendation. What would you recommend to bring or, or have as a prerequisite for a session? Yeah. I mean, I think that, that first and foremost is that you set out some guidelines, some rules for how it's going to work and they pre-read it to understand what to expect when they get there. Mm -hmm. So if they haven't been part of this before, you you lay out this. You know, we talked about this the, the, in the next session we're going to talk about um, during the session. But you lay that out so that there's something that they can understand. Hey, this is what I'm going to go through. Here's, what, here's the kinds of questions I'm going to need to have to answer. And I'm going to go start finding that information on my own in advance. Yeah. The other thing that uh, people can often find is uh, examples or information from other projects that are going on. So people are doing process mining. They're doing robotic process discovery all over the place. Try and find those data-driven insights, even if they're not the whole process. Maybe they might be a small part of it, or maybe they might uncover some of the system logic that you actually have sort of concealed in these existing systems that you're going to try and interact with. That's a useful thing to have, and process mining projects can easily emerge that out for you without a huge amount of work. It still hasn't done like the actual work of documentation and facilitation, but it is a good starting point. Mm -hmm. And and I agree. And I'd just like to reinforce that notion, right? There's two players here. One is obviously the participant that in my example, I would have sent home. Oh, right. But you as a, as a facilitator also have a task, right? Yeah. And yours is to do the legwork in advance to identify those things and, and uh, to say, oh yeah, what projects do we have, right? What is already existing? And then ask the people, oh, can you bring that? I heard you have... This and that thing already there. Uh, the last thing that I would, uh, and that might be also fall on the shoulders of the facilitator, yeah. uh, that I would look at would be things like uh, industry best practices, right? Yeah. Examples how how other have done that, you know, either within the firm or outside of the firm. But I think that's a that's a thing where a regular participant 
you know, say you're the practitioner, you might be maybe not have been exposed to that, you know, in, in previous projects. Yeah. So I think there's always two players, as we always say, you know, um, and in this case, it's a facilitator and it's the participants. Yeah. The other thing about industry best practices, and I wanted to tack this on here is that sometimes, um, application systems that you might be using at a, very, at a very high level, like things that control a huge amount of your process, will also have references. Mm-hmm. So you think about working with the SAP, the Oracles, the JD Edwards, and these, they'll have references on how it's supposed to work. Mm-hmm. You're facilitating a process session that will combine human and technology and drive requirements out for development. Knowing what the standard is for them gives you a leg up so you can know what you're breaking if you need to. <laughs> you're absolutely right, Jam. I think that's that's very important to have that external perspective. And, and we spoke about also industry organizations like uh, APQC and the Supply Chain Council and, and all those guys who might be an input there as well. Wonderful. But as we all know, what should what you shouldn't talk about is about or more than 25 minutes. So let's take a little <laughs> break. And um, in this first section, just to summarize it, we spoke about, okay, how do you identify what to change and, and what the purpose of that change is, right? Your enterprise baseline and these things. And then identify who to invite and who makes the decision who should be invited. And last but not least, you obviously need to ask, okay, what do I have to prepare? What do I have to ask the people to bring with and so that you don't start with a blank piece of paper? So my dear listeners, how have you done these things in the past? Where did you fall short? Where did you make experiences where it went well? we're back hopefully you've had a chance to think a little bit over the course of listening to that music and now we are going to talk about what happens during the session for process discovery process facilitation so roland how do we get started actually doing this section and how do we actually get moving on process facilitated discovery Mm -hmm. i mentioned it in the first section i think you need to have a good understanding of your landscape Okay. Right? So you need to understand how is your, in this case, business architecture being structured? Do, what are the guardrails that we talk about? How do we um, split the different process areas and who's responsible for what? Mm-hmm. Right? For that, you could use uh, frameworks, okay. you know, like TOGAF. When you look at the, at the ADM, they clearly state you need a strategy phase and a business architecture and data and technology and all these things. Right. You could use that. And and we spoke about that in episode five, if you might recall, long, long ago. Oh, yeah. About notations and frameworks and, and reference and all that type of stuff. And just for reference, TOGAF, the Open Groups Architecture Framework, is something that's a available online to take a look at. You can go and, and I think you can become a member of the Open Group um, to get access to the sure. TOGAF ADM um, with the architecture development method. Uh, is that right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. It's the architecture and it's free, it's by the free. way. You don't okay, have to that's be good. a member. I'm, I'm glad. For some reason, I, th- yeah. I thought it's, well, I, I know SCORE, you have to be a member. So the, for yeah, the supply chain council yeah. and uh, things like that. Is Apex now? Yeah. 
So there's, there's a few different organizations, but if you haven't, if you're not familiar with TOGAF, it's a really great starting point for how people are analyze and structure architecture. And it gives you a few different viewpoints, a bunch of different viewpoints about the kinds of questions you need to ask, mm -hmm. which is why I think Roland, you're mentioning at the beginning, because that, that really does set the stage. What things are we going to talk about in the session? Mm -hmm. what, what are you going to have to answer? participants and we can get into this now okay let's start answering these questions so that's that's one thing right things like TOGAF give you structures right and and then you also could have a look at content reference right. content and I, I mentioned APC and score and all these type of things and when you look for example at the process classification framework by APQC, uh -huh. it's like 12, 1300 processes decomposed on five levels. What organizations typically do, yeah. right? And that could give you a, a frame to say, do we operate in a similar way? And um, do we want to adapt this? And, and it comes with some benefits. And one could ask the question, should you do this? You know, should you adapt this or should you build your own? But at least it gives you a start. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing is it is it gives you that some of that high level structure that might be more challenging to to develop from the from the perspective of of a single process. Mm -hmm. And that's a question we often sort of struggle with: is do you want to document and structure things from the very top, so the first couple layers of process and architecture? Or do you want to start at the bottom with something that's very tangible, things you can see sort of the level threes and below? Hey, I understand this because I'm actually doing this work. And we get the question, oh, do you have to start with which one do you have to start with? Is it work if you start with the bottom? Can you go upwards? And I, I would say, I would argue that both work, but you're defining and making clear what you're going to use for this investigation. Otherwise, you're jumping around levels and no one knows where they are. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and, and I will put two links to two articles in the show notes that I wrote about how to structure your business architecture. But in summary, I think there's two different things you should do. Um, because there's two different views, if you will. One is you have a functional decomposition, right? So think about you would stand on a little hill and you would see the organization, um, being decomposed, you know, you would have yeah. a finance process and you would have a logistics process and an HR process and, and whatnot. And you want to decompose that on multiple levels to say, oh yeah, I have different buckets, you know, accounts receivable, accounts payable and so yeah. on and so forth. And, and it goes down to the nth level, by the way, hint, hint, not more than four or five in my opinion. Um, and on that lower level, you have the who does what, when, where, yes. uh, information. <laughs> and, and I think, um, there you can see a split, right? What I would typically recommend is that you have an initial meeting with those overall responsible people that I mentioned in the first section to say, how do we structure these things? And come to an agreement on a level one or two, right? To say, oh yeah, on a high level, we all agree there must be a finance process. There must be an HR process. There must be this and this process. And then maybe let those people after you assigned ownership of this, maybe you let them figure out what the level two is, right? In my uh, example, you have accounts payable and accounts receivable, which are two completely different things. Oh, yeah. And um, put that in as the guardrails, if you will. And then take a step back and say, okay, now let's have a look at what you actually do. And this is where it comes a second view, if you will, in it, where typically organizations 
want to improve end-to-end processes. And, and JM, I know you've done that once or twice. Can you <laughs> share a little bit of best practices when you uh, create your end-to-ends? Yeah, that's a, that's a really important point. So end-to-ends are stitching together your lower-level processes or activities through their consumers or producers. Essentially mm-hmm. saying, who do I interlock with? Um, in the platform I use, we call that process interface. But process interface implies a higher level sort of stringing together of processes that may cross organizational functional boundaries, but represent the, uh, an outcome to a customer, an outcome to the business as a collected set of processes or process steps. Now, one of the things that we, we tend to do with end-to-ends is we either we either back our way into them or we come at it you know, through the through the front gates. Through the front gates mm-hmm. is... We would like to build the end-to-end. We bring all the cross-functional teams in the room. We have different ownerships of different areas. And we have all of them sit down and we have them fight over who gets the next step. Because we know what the outcome is. We know all the parts that need to happen. And we're going to fight our way until we structure them in, in, in an order that makes sense, that actually produces the output and has clear ownership along the way. That's the front gates. That's through, that's through the front gates, right? You can back your way into that, though. By having low-level processes that you later on absorb into an end-to-end. So you create those low-level processes. You have very specific tight ownership of those processes. And then you have them say, well, I need to do this. And it requires this information from this other team. Okay, one second. And so now you can, now you're starting to create those little hooks. And then you emerge those upwards into an end-to-end once you have all those hooks aligned. And it's now your job to put the pieces of this puzzle together. Does that make sense? I think you need it. It does. I like to make it a little bit more specific, though. So one thing that when when I think about end to ends, right? So to be very clear, we're talking about things like procure to pay or order to cash or whatever record to report. Yeah, yeah. If you think about finance, right? So the the key driver, in my opinion, is what is the outcome of the end to end. So how do I assemble the different outcomes of my end to ends together to create the value? for the customer in inverted commas, right. right? Which could be obviously internally or externally. But uh, at some point in time, you produce something. Yeah. So it's less, in my opinion, about who's doing it. Uh, that will come, definitely that question. But in the beginning, that's not the, in my opinion, not the point that's important. It's more important what's the outcome, right? And then ask the question, why do we actually need to produce this? Yeah. Why, why do we need to to create financial reports? Well, <laughs> law so requires it. The SEC that. requires it. You know, so there might be some good reasons why why you want to have this. But I think it's worth reconciling this when you create your end to end landscape. No, that that's totally fair. And I, I I love I love getting this kind of conversation going because it really I think it does it does spur people thinking, okay, so how am I going to do this? Mm-hmm. And we talk about how um, how you're going to do this. Let's get into the actual facilitation of this. So, how would you start your session? And then let's talk about going through the body of a session itself. Yeah. So, I the first thing that I that I typically like to do is, is uh do the pre-work that we spoke about in the last segment. You know, um, you assemble, you come up with the ideas, what you want, you uh, give them the homework and all these type of things. But when it comes to the actual session, I typically start with repeating, why are we here? What are the objectives? Uh You know, what's in and what's out of scope for the next two hours, right? So you you state the objectives, you um, state the desired outcome. Oh, in this session... 
we want to create the process flow. We don't want to talk about systems. We don't want to talk about roles. We don't want to talk about this and that and that. Right. It's just the sequence of steps and understanding the logic of the process. Right. So that's a different outcome than, oh, yeah, we need to map everything and it needs to be on a very high fidelity basis and, and all these type of things. Right. Yeah. And then, um, which most people forget, at least in the beginning, <laughs> do a little introduction yeah. to your participants because there might be people in the room that others haven't seen. And then they might ask, who's, just stick with that example, who's that young guy in the corner? You know, I haven't seen that person before. You know, and you say, oh, yeah, this is, what about our intern? This is our new hire. And by the way, their role is to take notes and ask stupid questions because they might not be in the business that you are in and they might not understand. And that's obviously helpful. Yeah. I, I was laughing because I could see the point on the page in front of me. I was like, yeah, how many sessions have we been in where you don't know, like, <laughs> you're not, you're not a facilitator. Half and you don't know half people. people in there. You're like, what yeah. are you doing here? And then like at mm -hmm. the end of the meeting, they'll walk up and be like, I'm so glad I'm from like, you know, compliance. And this was like yeah. essential to me. And I'm like, if I knew that two hours ago, I would have done something very special for you. <laughs> Tell me who you are. Or I should have known who was in the freaking room. Yeah. Or one of the things is, and, and of course, after a certain amount of time, when you're in a program, you know the people, but some people, some participants just can't get out of their skin. You know, oh, we are from the strategy process and uh, ours is super important. And therefore everything turns back to our process. And let's talk about my process, you know, um, and, and they are very opinionated, which not in, in every situation is really helpful. <laughs> But JM, so now that we've introduced uh, everybody and, and we know what we want to do and what we want to accomplish and, and what the outcome of the session is, what's next then? Well, I, I like to talk about the structure of design sessions as a go fast, go slow. Mm -hmm. And what is go fast, go slow? So go fast is all about being responsive and capturing as much as you can from people as they talk. Let people talk. You're guiding their conversations, but let them talk and get what they're saying down on paper go slow is the reflection. So you said the following. So it's kind of like reading back from a like, stenographer in court. Mm -hmm. Here's what you said. Is this accurate? Well, I mean, I meant this. Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay. Well, so I've got this picture that I've put up there. Does this look right? No, let me change this. So mm -hmm. the, I, I like to start the whole conversation with this idea of go fast, go slow, which is why it's good to have two or more people facilitating because one can go fast and one can go slow. Oh, I agree. Which is good. So that, that, that's how I approach it. And obviously, to go slow, you need to have some reference to what they just said. So it's you're taking notes or from a, a lot of perspectives and certainly from our experience, it's about having a modeling platform or, I mean, geez, if you don't have that, even just a you know, papers on the wall, stickies, whiteboards, whatever it is, you're notating something down in an agreed upon visual format that they can reflect on together. Does that make sense? It does. And, and I'd like to stress this a little bit in a sec, but uh, it, just to put it in perspective, I think you also must distinguish between uh, a design session that you have and maybe... Yeah. Uh, the fact that it doesn't happen in one session. Yeah. So I typically like set up in multiple. And uh, like I said before, at the beginning, I would start in session one with a flow, right? No roads, no apps, no nothing. And um, to come to your question, do you need a tool for this? Um, 
my answer is it might be helpful um, as long as you're professional enough in using the tool. Yeah. And let me explain what that means. Some people work very, very well with um, outlines, you know, with bullet points or people like me, like mind maps, you know, get the different things just sorted out or, or put down brainstorm wise and then sort it out in a structure that works. Yeah, sure. Some people like to have formal notations like a BPMN diagram. Right. But that also has the question about, is it for everyone? Yeah. Some participants might not understand what's the difference between that diamond and that rounded rectangle and that circle. So you add up a um, big hurdle for those guys to participate because, and I'm pretty sure you had the same situation. I had that. Nobody asks the question because you don't want to be seen as the dumb person in the room. Yeah. But rather you nod and say, of course, it has to be that way. While on the other side, you might not even understand what that is. Yeah. But I, I might get on a tangent, A, because <laughs> you and I had a uh, a long form podcast about notations and we had we a did. shorts about EPC versus BPMN. And with a little bit of luck in the next season, we're going to have an inventor of his own notation who tries Ooh. to um, solve that problem by make it as simple as possible. Don't promise. I need to convince him <laughs> to show up. But um, at the end of the day, it's okay. You need to make it uh, palatable yeah, for the audience. Absolutely. And if it's not palatable, they're going to feel disconnected. Even if they agreed, mm -hmm. they're going to feel, mm -hmm. oh, well, I said yes, but I didn't really feel it. I didn't see it. This wasn't mine. Yeah. And that's, that's the enemy of consensus. Yeah. Which, which then, and at some point in time, we want to get to a model, right? So I don't want to delay this too much, but it also means how do you lay out your model, right? And I'm not only talking about vertical versus horizontal. I'm talking about how do I identify the happy path, you know, the most used path versus what are the exceptions? What are the loops that are there? You know, and that is obviously a hard thing because in my experience in workshops, people don't think happy path. Yeah. People think, oh, this is the thing that bothers me forever, yeah. Oh, this is the thing that typically goes south, you know, Ooh, those stupid customers, they always forget to do X, Y, and Z, you know? And, and I think this is a big challenge to say, okay, how do I lay it out in a way that the model is understandable, independent of the notation? And that's something you talk about as both easy and hard questions. I know it sounds <laughs> kind of glib to say this, but you need people to answer both the easy and the hard questions in this conversation. Mm -hmm. The easy question really should be, if everything goes right, how does this work? Yeah. The hard question should be, where can it go wrong or go differently? And what are you going to have to do to accommodate for that? And I think that's something that people struggle with. They they start with one of these. They, they focus so heavily on it. They get lost in the other one. They, they're like, oh, I can answer all these hard questions. Here are all my exceptions. And then, just like you said, we go back to them and say, like, okay, what's the non-exception process? Oh, yeah. Uh, um, well, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. And and start with that, right? You, you need to have the shared 
baseline understanding of the process. You know, what is the happy path? And, and then you identify the exceptions from it. Right. So that you always can refer back and say, no, didn't we agree on this is what people should do? You know, step one, step two, step three. Yeah. And, and that also brings uh, me to another point when we think about doing the facilitation of the uh, session. You always will have people like me in the room, you know, people who like to talk a lot and uh, <laughs> people who might want to dominate the, the discussion. Right. And some people might be a little bit more introvert. Um, and I think your role as a facilitator, JM, is to basically go the round, as I like to call it, mm. you know, bring in those people who don't speak up. Right. Maybe work with those loud people in, in getting the happy path and all these things in. But at some point in time, you just say, okay, let's take a step back. Hey, JM, you haven't said anything. What do you think about that? Did we forget something? What is your opinion on the sequence? Um, is that really what you see? You know, these type of questions and then yeah. go through the room and, and have everybody have their say. And then once you're at the end of your session, once you have your process there, do the very same thing. Have everybody not, right? To say, hey, yeah. JM, do you agree? This is the process. Yes, 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 right? Without um, the the apps and roles and all that type of stuff, because that will be a big contentious thing in the next session. <laughs> and I think that, let, let, first and foremost, that's very inclusive. That, and that leads us to our next um, component here, which is our follow-ups, right? We're going to, at the end, say to everyone, here's what we accomplished you're going to get a copy of this, what, this so we can all agree again in the virtual space of what we worked on together synchronously mm -hmm. and then schedule the next sessions. We want to have follow-ups. And as you mentioned, sort of the layers of detail, we're going to include different participants. They're going to include different components of our process we didn't decide to go into today for time or for scope. Um, and meanwhile, you'll have an opportunity before those sessions to review and do the pre-work for the next session based off what we captured today. So you can discuss with comments, you can provide feedback, you can give lots of information on how things should be different. And once again, if you weren't that comfortable talking in the session and maybe the facilitator didn't catch that, this is a great opportunity for the less charismatic and outgoing people who want to talk all the time to have their say on how the process flow should end up being developed. And then think outside of the box, you know, um, obviously your tool might have a commenting function or, or something else, but that not, might not be the way how you work in your organization. So think about setting up a Slack channel or a forum. Right. And it give people uh, that little electronic niche where they can exchange ideas or post questions, you know, when it comes to their minds. But JM, um, fast forward, you send out the homework, mm -hmm. you know, um, how do you approach those follow up sessions? What's the structure of of those um, when you facilitate? That's a good question. Obviously, the first thing I want to do in those follow up sessions is define their reduced or different scope. So here's what we're going to be doing in this one that is different than what was done last time. So it sort of sets the expectations a little better. Mm -hmm. Once again, I reintroduce the participants and particularly focus on who I'm now including and what their new role is going to be. And we define the scope. We, we sort of, first and foremost, we, we confirm what we said last time. So is this still correct? Was there any changes that people have in, in their sort of homework time? Something that needs to be done. 
if it is so, we're going to set that. This is now our baseline, the flow. Mm-hmm. Now, the only thing we're going to work on is how other components tie into it. Roles, systems, risks, capabilities, customer touch points, all the different types of details we want to add into this. And now let's let our, our collaborators, a new participants, speak up and let's have an open discussion about how those work. So normally that's what, that's what I like to do. I like to set the baseline, confirm it, then set the scope, get into it with our new participants and have them work on this directly and capture the same way I would before to display to everyone, here's what they're contributing. Yeah, and, and that is very important because you might introduce, and, and I like that, you might introduce new people. And, and one example was a project that I worked on 15 years ago, you know, where the client decided to do an SAP re-implementation. Mm. And, and there was that finger pointing, you know, that you had the, the client people who said, yep, this is how we do the process, um, but we don't know what the new ERP system, the SAP system that we implement do. Right. And on the other side, you brought in the external consulting firm who was supposed to implement the system. And they said, yeah, I can tell you which transactions and, and what the system can do, but I don't know what the process is. <laughs> and, and they never, that really never came into the same sessions. Right. Which was Ooh. horrible. Right. That's, that's so dangerous. Oh, yeah. Then you get the system automated in the way that you don't want. <laughs> no, no, the project failed. The project failed. Oh, we all got sent failed. home. Got it, it failed. It. Yeah. And, and maybe it was for the better. Obviously, it was disappointing for everybody involved. But I think it's important then to say, okay, hey, I got this implementer here. And, oh, the implementer tells me the new system does work differently than I was used to. Hmm. Do I like that? You know, do, hmm. I, do I need to change this? So you should come up with um, the, the, the ability to resist conflicting ideas, right? Or perceived responsibilities that you might have that might change, right? That's a big topic for like navigating <laughs> resistance, mm-hmm. which we are not going to get into today. But I mean, I, I've been in a lot, I was on a project in, uh, in central Canada and we, we got into the room and the, the facilitated session had, I think we had like 10 or 12 participants and there was this one person who sat not even at the table, just mm-hmm. in the back, holding a thick binder that he would occasionally violently open and flip to a page, look at it, look up at the process facilitators, scowl and shake his head and then slam the binder <laughs> shut the entire session. And then he would sometimes whisper to one of the participants to be like, just say no, just tell him no. <laughs> so we're not going to get into how to overcome that. That was a challenge. But yeah. what we will say is that you want to work with these people collaboratively. We want to bring them into the conversation and make them feel invested. Because also your SIs or your your uh, ultimately your like providers of automation tools, they want to be collaborative. They want these projects to succeed. Mm-hmm. And living on top of their own little dragon's hoard of control, they're just going to be alone. They're not going to get any clients. They're not going to be successful with these projects. They're going to fail. So we, we need to give them incentives. Yeah, it's also su- their success, right? It's not that exactly. they... Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. But there's also, and I'd like to speed up a little bit, there's also a couple of things that uh, you might have to do in the background, right? So imagine you would change your roles, right? with your future state process uh, or you need to change the structure of your processes because you decide to split processes or combine them. 
or move them into another vertical or, or whatever, right? So there's some homework yeah. afterwards that obviously has an impact. And that's the next point. You need to capture that impact, right? So for example, you right. might decide in your process, oh, we don't need that stinking app that we use for 15 years anymore. We want something new and shiny, <laughs> right? Yep. Someone needs to check the impact of that idea, right? Go to your, your IT architect and say, oh, by the way, we want to get rid of this SAP thing. You know, that's easy, isn't it? Oh, right? and, and that person... <laughs> That person might disagree with your with your quick impact analysis, right? Which <laughs> might have an might have an impact on you as well, right? And, oh and then last but not least, we spoke about that a million times. Is obviously capture the org change management items, yeah. right? Oh, we changed this. Oh, wait a sec, we need we need to talk with Jimmy in training, right? Or yeah. there's that program communication lady. Let's talk to her so that she gets a heads up, right? And uh, then. Uh, that's my last point. Obviously, once you have a process in multiple iterations and you, you say, okay, this is the new future state where you need to agree on what's the planned timeline to publish this thing, to go live, you yeah. know? So obviously, if there's a system implementation, that's a constraint, right? Because that might take weeks and months and years in some cases. Uh, or if it's just a just an org change that might be faster or a small process change. But you also have to think about the publishing, right? Do you need to, to change the SOPs? Oh, yeah. do you provide them in paper, right? Gee, how do you do those changes, right? Think about a company like Starbucks, you know, they have big binders for their employees, yeah. um, for the baristas, right? So that all needs to be changed. And roll a thousand piece of paper, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, you're not done with just having an agreement in your session. You also need to think about, okay, what are the next steps, right? What are the things that somebody else need to chime in and whatnot, which also might mean that you have some electronic follow-up with a group that you just thought you had a process completed, uh, or you might have even another meeting to say, oh, Jim Bob from IT came back and said, uh, no, we won't replace SAP in the near future. <laughs> so uh, you might have more to do. I think that's what I want to say. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that more to do in our last section for the show, the after the session work that you're going to do. But until then, we're going to leave you just for one more little moment to reflect on, on what you've heard today, um, particularly about how you're going to structure your session, how to start it, going fast and going slow, building layouts to models, doing the follow-up sessions to get more, more details, and then helping to roll things out with the impact of uh, the change, organization change management, and a, and a timeline for go live. Well, if you've done this before, maybe you, this is very familiar to you. If this is brand new, what parts maybe did you not think about? What, what have you skipped in the past? And where have you maybe run into a little trouble as a result of those missing pieces? We'll leave you for just a moment to come back with our final section after the session and a conclusion to today's show. Welcome back. 
Um, we already spoke a little bit before the break about what to do after the session, but I think this phase is really, really important to keep the good result together and also to bring in all the people who need to be informed and contribute on a wider level with it. So JM, uh, in the next 10 minutes or so, I'd like to talk with you about all the activities that you do after you've done the hard work. You came up with a new process. You, you identified the org changes, the app changes. You involved all people doing additional analysis and org change management and whatnot. What do you do actually after each of those sessions? Yeah. And I, I got to tell you, this is where I cut my teeth in this industry. I mean, I'm a fairly adept modeler. Mm -hmm. And what do I do after the sessions? I get on my computer and I make it as pretty as I possibly can. That's right. I clean up my models so that they're ready to package. Then I package those models and publish them to the participants that helped create them. Mm -hmm. And that's not just the ones who did the process discovery itself. Those are all the people who we talked about before who brought in additional information and context from their domain across the business. So your folks from the application world, your folks from the organizational structure world, your folks in the risk world, all these people need to get their copy of this in as best as presentation as possible to invite their feedback, but to also to get them to see you really did listen to them. That's a buy-in. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, the first thing that I do is after the session is I close it out or shut it down and I wait <laughs> a couple of days. You know, Ooh. before I even touch it, you know, and I do other things, obviously, you know, but then after a couple of days with some distance, I do exactly what you just said. And one mm -hmm. thing, and those who have worked with me in the past know that I love to put stickies, virtual stickies on everything that I see, because if you have that time distance from your last session, you might look at these things with fresh eyes, right? And then you might think about, mm, is that name right? Were we specific enough here? Oh, what was what Jim Bob said to this point again? I don't recall, you know, so you put those stickies in there and um, you, you quote unquote publish this to your participants said, Hey guys, you know, I cleaned it up. This is how it looks like. I just noticed something. Would you mind to have a look at this and, and answer my questions that are there and do that in the public forum, right? Whatever means you chose, you know, Slack, yeah, yeah. forums, emails, whatever you, you chose. Yeah, it's funny. We have an expression in comedy about that exact same thing. When you're writing a script, you ask, is that joke funny mm -hmm. or is it 3 a.m. funny? Which says, <laughs> were we up all night writing this joke yeah. and we just went to print with it? Yeah. And it's like, wait, wake up the next day or two days and see if it's still funny. That same mm -hmm. thing. With I, I love it. With process, you're like, I need a little space to reflect on this so that I can see with fresh eyes, does what I wrote make sense? Yeah. And then I can actually ask the follow-up questions to help me get better with it, which is great. And then also we're gonna we're gonna use this as a driver for invitation, right? These these like pieces of collateral become essentially like your little dinner invitations for the next sessions mm -hmm. because they're gonna be missing information and you're gonna send that with missing information as a pre-read for your next collaborators. Or, or you have the parking lot items. Yes. Where you say, we intentionally excluded, right, these topics from this version of the process, right? right? Which also includes, there's some thought of future versions, 
right? That this is all iterative. But I do that typically after each session, be it a design session or uh, the, the final, 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 final session. Final, 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 actually, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, but once you get there, so you dedicate whatever, an hour or two to as your final session. What do you do, JM? What do you do after that final session? Yeah, well, first you need to make sure you can lock it, right? You want to lock the whole thing, which means first and foremost, all of your participants need to all have said, yes, there is no more that I feel is required yep. to, to, to finish this out. Another round. Yeah, yeah. One more round of nods. Yeah, yeah. Like I, like I said before, another round. And, but once the participants are done, they're not necessarily your approvers. So you need to go to the person who owns this whole process and that could be anyone from a global process owner to a VP of process or someone who owns a you know, process improvement here. And you need to get a formal sign off on this because they're, they're actually in certain industries you actually have to see the chain of sign offs. I mean, particularly yeah. think about pharma, biotech, you think about financial services. There's a lot of regulation mm-hmm. around the actual sign off on processes. That needs to be done because the people in the room aren't enough, right? You need to get the right, the right person at a stakeholder level. And then we need to start taking this to the rest of the folks we've, we, we, we're going to serve with this, with this piece of collateral. You've created something and now you need to share it. So Roland, how have you shared out what you've done? Oh, this is a very interesting question because obviously it depends on the tool that you have, right? You, you could, you could create PDFs and long documents and whatever, or you run a report from your, from your tool if, if that gives you a, document and, and whatnot, right? Um, I think the more advanced tools have something like uh, that we hear called cycles. So you have uh, special governance processes defined for those occasions. Mm-hmm. So you have something like review cycles, right? That you use right. in between the different sessions or you have approval cycles, right? So you send it to the business owner, you send it to the risk owner, you send it to the tech QA folks, right? And, and if all three say thumbs up, we agree it, well, then you get it approved, right? Which means once they have it, you have the state of quote unquote official publishing, right? Yeah. And, and that is where uh, you have things like versioning coming in, right? right? Where you do the comparisons, what has changed, you know, because that's the silly question that org change management (laughs) people and all the end users are asking, right? Uh, You might have another cycle in there, a read and understood cycle, right? So when you think about the the, uh, regulated um, industries, you might want to have a banner or whatever, some other means where you inform your process participants that your process has changed. You know, don't put chocolate into the skin cream anymore, right? <laughs> um, because the FDA might not like that. So have something like an acknowledgement cycle that's going on. And then obviously all the other stuff, you need to update your SOPs, your standard operating procedures, maybe your policies and, and all these things that your organization might have set up. And this now becomes your vector for broadcast. Mm-hmm. So you need to build a plan to communicate, you know, comms plan, all the changes that are relevant and to the people who it's relevant to. So how are you going to talk about this process to its participants, 
to its stakeholders, to its end consumers? How are people going to know about this, know how to change their behavior so you get, know to know and get the new SOPs? How mm-hmm. are they going to know that this is something you're doing at the organization? So broadcast it far and wide. Be proud of this new development and use your channels, whether or not you have an internal company television station or newsletter or emails or whatever. You, you need to repeat this because repetition breeds understanding and acceptance. And like in all advertisement, when you think you can't hear the message anymore because you've repeated it over and over and over again, (laughs) I think that might be the point in time where your actual recipients notice that something has changed, right? So take a step back and don't think about yourself when you've done whatever, five or 10 sessions on this. And when you went through all those cycles and and you lift and breathe this thing and you're just happy to get it out of the door. This is just not even half of the battle, right? <laughs> I think that the most important one is get the word out. And when you get the impression that you've done too much, well, that might be the bare minimum on communication. Because <laughs> yeah, you know it, right? Like you, you are you're yeah. very close to it. And all the other thing is that you've also had a lot of the, the input to it. So you need to open up those new channels. So after you publish it, one of the things I love to do is provide feedback mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Just like uh, we'll talk about in a few seconds on the What's Your Baseline podcast. Uh, it's good to have feedback mechanisms for your processes. So whether or not it's a comment forum on the process inside your, your process modeling platform, whether or not it's you know, forums within your intranet, something like email or, or different collaboration tools like Team and Slack, those sorts of things you want to get people liking and sharing and commenting on and providing feedback to you so you can continuously improve this process. And that doesn't just stop with the one release. You're also looking at over time becoming this, you know, interactive space for process interaction. I mean, sounds like a a tautology, but you're building a a space that people can really build better processes through understanding, through learning, through living, and then through thinking. Oh, I'm absolutely on, on, on your side on this. I think um, what you also have to do is, is not only provide those things um, as part of your process or as part of uh, your technology that you have. But you also need to uh, look a couple of weeks or months later on this, right? So you need to not only provide the the feedback mechanism, but you also have to solicit it, right? Send out a survey, um, use process mining results, Right. If you do this and, oh God, the most horrible thing, ask people, you know, talk to them, you know, <laughs> um, our, our next guest will, will talk about this in, in lean. They call it Gemba, you know, which actually roughly translated stand in the shoes of the person who does the, the process, you know, go and observe. Right. So I think your work as the facilitator, as the process owner is not done at the moment when you finalize and put the last virtual ink on the approval process, you know, that's when it starts. What you want to know is actually, did we improve, right? And and we said that a couple of times already on the podcast. It doesn't matter how many training sessions you have or or other project-related KPIs that you measure. The only thing that counts is, do you do things differently and is the outcome a better one? Ah, I love it. 
Well, talking about the outcome as a better one, I wanted to wrap up this episode today. I think we've had a really great discussion, Roland and I, and hopefully all of you have enjoyed this idea of how to facilitate process discovery and design sessions. You've heard about what happens before the session, identifying what you need to change, setting your purpose, uh, figuring out who you want to invite. So building that community of people who are going to inform you and giving them some pre-work so they can come prepared and help to build something amazing in the short time or times you have together. And then during the session, how are we going to structure our organization, the business architecture that leads to our processes we're building today? Let's start the session facilitated with objectives, outcomes, and an introduction to participants. Then let's run our session, go fast and go slow on different platforms or tools to build it, laying out your model, challenging people to answer the easy questions and the hard questions, and going the round to get those nods with, with everyone. And then holding the follow-up sessions as necessary to fill out all those details you couldn't capture in the first ones or really shouldn't capture in terms of scope creep. And then after the session, as we package those models, ready to publish them to all of our participants, getting those final head nods, and then getting a formal sign-off and then publishing eventually to a larger community of people with versioning, read and understood, standard operating procedures, as well as your other collaborators like our change management, training, communications folks, and then the long tail of process providing feedback mechanisms, soliciting feedback, measuring value, seeing the change in, in life and continuously improving as you notice where things could get even better. Well, that's been a heck of a show for me, Roland. Hopefully you've enjoyed it too. I did. Oh, <laughs> if you enjoy these sorts of shows, please, uh, Roland, any questions, any last things before we, we sign off for the day, my friend? No, 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 we're good. We're good. I, I thought you wouldn't ask me about if I enjoyed it, but uh, <laughs> obviously we hope that you, dear listeners, enjoyed it. And I hope you can give us some feedback. As mm. you know, this is typically the time where I ask our guests how to reach them. In our case, just send us an email at hello at whatsyourbaseline.com or leave a comment on the contact form on the website. But JM, maybe back to you for some final words. <laughs> well, I, I had a really good time too. And yes, please, please do reach out to us. We've gotten some really great feedback from folks um, and it's helped to shape the way we do our show, which is, which is great. I love to hear from people and uh, sort of what the session is all about hearing from people. But until the next one, friends, I've been JM Erlinson. And my name is Roland Volt. And we will see you in the next one. <laughs>